wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. We are continuing a series as we're marching through the book of Galatians. So if you want to grab your notes out of your handout and follow along, tons of fill-in, opportunity to maybe take some notes so you can remember some of this stuff. And, and then if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Galatians. We'll be in chapter 3 today. So kind of a good old-fashioned jump into the Word. Let's just kind of go through major portion of this. You'll notice that today's message is called Umbrella of Grace. And so I'm going to go ahead and open this up. It's visual. I'm going to need grace from some of you as you believe that this is bad luck. Uh, and I just want to tell you, it's only bad luck if you open it inside of a room that's not so large, it can create its own weather patterns, which is kind of where we are today. Um, but here, here's the thing. Umbrella of grace is a phrase that I have used so often in my life, and maybe you have too. And where I typically use it is when we're in a creative meeting. And if we're in a creative meeting and, and we're trying to whiteboard some stuff, how we might move forward with a certain project or creatively address some issue, uh, typically before I throw out an idea, I'll say, okay, umbrella of grace here, and then I'll throw out an idea. And the reason why I say it is because I'm asking for some kind of a gracious covering, knowing that what I'm going to throw out probably isn't a great idea in and of itself. In fact, we all know, if you've ever been a part of a creative process, you know that sometimes it takes the bad ideas that lead to mediocre ideas, and the mediocre ideas sometimes lead to, you know, halfway decent ideas, and the halfway decent ideas might lead to a legitimately solid idea. And, and so you kind of have this umbrella of grace over that context so that you're free to throw out ideas that might be kind of stinky among themselves, but yet know that without condemnation, I'm going to throw these things out, hoping that they lead to something more valuable. Uh, you guys know what I'm talking about. Can I get an amen for that? Okay, so here's the thing. I, I, I do want you to know that I, f I did a little research and I found it ironic that even though this year we have set all kinds of records for rainfall in Seattle, that we are still not in the top 10 markets for umbrella sales in America. It just, it's just, it cracks me up. But you know what Seattle is the number one market for? Sunglasses. And it's not because we're so cool, okay? No, it's because, well, you know, I, I hail from Southern California. In Southern California, people cannot drive in the rain. Literally, they, like, lose their minds. They, like, drizzle, abandon their car. Like, just cannot deal with it. We've got that nailed up here. We, we know how to drive in the rain. We have to. We couldn't go anywhere if we didn't. Um, no, when the sun comes out, though, we literally, like, what is that thing, you know? And so we rush off to the store, we buy some sunglasses, we put them on, we enjoy that glorious half afternoon. <laughs> and then the sun goes away for a week or a month or five months and, and, and we lose our glasses or we recycle them or we compost them like good Seattleites and, and then the sun comes out again and what? We have, we have to do the same, we have to go buy a new pair because... We are moles. <laughs> that was for free. That's really not a part of the message. But, uh, but the umbrella of grace, and what's interesting about the umbrella of grace is even as you say the phrase umbrella of grace, you're, you're recognizing that there is a covering. There's this gracious covering 
that, that saves us, right? That, that pr- protects, that produces some kind of, uh, there's abstentia of condemnation and judgment because of this umbrella of grace. And that's what Paul is getting after in this context of Galatia. He's talking about this is all that matters. And so if you take a look, that first fill-in is that grace is our shelter, A couple of meanings to this idea of umbrella of grace that Paul wants us to know. And and the first is that grace is our shelter. Paul talks about it. It's talked about all in the New Testament. But it's actually all throughout Scripture, this context of a shelter over us as God's people. Psalm 91, 1 and 2 says, Those who live in the shelter, go ahead and circle that word, the shelter of the Most High will find rest, please circle rest, rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He's my God, and I trust in him. What I'd love to have you do is draw now a line between the word shelter and rest, because I want you to see the connection there, that as we shelter under the grace of Jesus, our hearts receive rest in him. And, and, and the, the recognition is then that there's no longer a striving for, there's no longer this sense I have to earn or merit God's favor, uh, the, the blessing of God, the salvation of God. Why? Because I've sheltered under the umbrella of grace. It's my shelter. So my soul finds rest there in his presence. The second thing we know about this concept of the umbrella of grace, we talked about it last week, and Paul will bring it up again in today's chapter, but the, the recognition is that it's, it's designed to be for everybody, right? Paul's going to actually, he's going to go back to Abraham, the time of Abraham, the promise of God to Abraham, where Abraham it was going to be blessed, and then God would bless all the nations through this blessing to Abraham. And so the recognition is that the person of Jesus Christ, he provides the grace. It's not just for the Jewish community. It is actually for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We sang that truth just a few moments ago. So the shelter of grace is for everyone. That's what it is designed to be for. The next fill-in is that grace is a difficult concept to grasp. Paul found this with the Galatians, that they were quick to grasp it and then move away from it, and and we recognize it's a difficult concept for us to get and to really live in this truth. There's something about human nature which constantly seeks to revert to some kind of a works-based performance orientation when it comes to our spiritual journey. There's just something that just it just kind of twists really subtly, and it's insidious. We talked about that last week, but the idea is, yes, we receive the grace of Jesus, then we try to rebuild a religion that will make us right with God, when Jesus already says, you are right with God through the grace that I've provided for you. And Paul goes hard after this. Let's take a look. Galatians 3.1 says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you. I, I, I don't think Paul is saying that question literally. I think he's speaking metaphorically here. He's like, it's like you're in, a, in an evil fog. You're cloudy here. For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. He's saying, look, it used to be so clear this grace offered in Jesus. 
It used to be like you had been there yourselves to see him crucified. It looked, it was like you'd seen this, this incredible portrait of him on the cross and, or maybe like the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It was so clear to you. And not just the clarity of the image in your minds, he's saying the meaning was clear as well. The meaning that Jesus provides this grace, and it's only in Jesus that we are under this umbrella of grace. And Paul, really, he goes really specifically, he says, look, we cannot treat grace as meaningless. If there were any other way for this thing to happen... If there were any other pathway to, to, to be right with God and to be with him in eternity in heaven, uh, if there were any religion, if there were any amount of self-discipline, if, if there was any other pathway at all, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. So we cannot treat the grace of God as meaningless, he says. We, we have to recognize its full meaning, that it's in Christ that now we have this provision and this covering and really, there's a great sense of freedom that comes from this truth and a sense of empowerment. Take a look at this next fill-in if you're filling in the blanks. Grace is empowering, and grace sets us free. Grace is empowering, and grace sets us free. And, and you'll notice as you read through Galatians, I hope you're joining us as we read through Galatians, that freedom is a concept that Paul comes back to several times because it really does set us free from the burden of law, Paul says, and it sets us free from the burden of sin. So we have this incredible freedom and this empowerment to live a full life because of the love of Jesus Christ. I'm going to skip ahead now to Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Paul continues. He says, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? So, so again, grace protects us from this performance orientation to God that Paul calls this the striving of our own human effort. And remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing to the believers in Jesus that live in this region of Galatia. And so primarily the believers of Jesus will have come from pagan backgrounds, the, the, um, the Greek uh, heritage or the Roman heritage. That would have been the, the cultural heritage that they were bringing into following Jesus. But many would have also been Jewish uh, believers and practitioners who are now following Jesus. So it's, it's within a mixed context that Paul's asking the question. Look, you, you, are you now trusting the law to provide this power for you? It never has provided the power before. So he's talking to the Jewish believers. You, you've, you've followed the law. You've never received the Spirit by the way, the law doesn't promise or provide the Spirit of God. So he's, it's not that the law failed in this. It's saying you just have never received the Spirit from all the laws and all the religion that you followed. And then, of course, to the, to the Greek and the Roman believers, they've never followed the law at all. So, so they're like, no, you're right. I never, I never received the Spirit from the law. So he's just saying that, that's, that's kind of a, a question. That's not where you start. He says you receive the Spirit when you believe in Jesus. Now, friends, this is true for you and it's true for me. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible is clear that God comes and begins to dwell inside of us. He makes a home of our hearts. 
And so we simply believe this by faith. Now, I know that some of you would right now say, yes, I believe that, and I actually experience it. I feel close to the Lord. I can tell the Lord is with me, that he's guiding me. And, and for some of us, we believe, and, and, and yet we're like, oh, I don't know if I feel the spirit within me. I don't know if, if that's kind of like tangibly or emotionally real for me today. And, and it's just one of those things where we have to remember that this is the truth. And so we acknowledge the truth. We affirm the truth, even if sometimes we don't actually feel the truth. Emotions are awesome. I want to be really, really clear. Our emotions, our feelings are awesome. They're wonderful. Uh, I'm, I'm a feeling kind of a guy. But, but we never consult emotion for truth. You know this, right? You, you never probe your feelings to find out what is true. It, it, think about a math class, right? You learn a formula in math and you go, well, is that emotionally true for me? Like we just don't, like, 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 like truth is this other thing. And so... Uh, one of my favorite stories from my old boss and pastor, Rick Warren, down in Southern California, he, he told the story of the day that he got married to his wife, Kay. I think they've been married for like 45 years. But, but when, they, when they got married, the actual day they got married, after the ceremony, the reception are over, they hop in a car, and they're driving off together to, to go to their honeymoon. And they're having a blast. They're just chatting about the day. And, and Rick was driving, and he looks over at Kay, and he says, you know, Kay, it's the funniest thing, he says. He goes, he goes, I know we're married, but I don't feel married. And she shot back, I don't care what you feel, mister. <laughs> You're married. You better remember that, you know. And it's just such a, a good reminder that, yeah, sometimes you feel one way, sometimes you feel another way. But the truth is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord himself has come. He dwells within you. And it's because of the umbrella of grace. It's not because of law. It's not because of performance. It's not because of how you're doing this particular week and your spiritual disciplines, anything like that. It's because you believe in Jesus. He comes and dwells within you. And then Paul asks this question. He says, after starting your life by the Spirit, why are you now trying to finish by your own human effort? It's such a great question. It's such a great question because it, it, it brings up our tendency, which is we know the journey starts with grace, and yet so often we, we begin the spiritual journey in grace, and then we leave it behind to build some kind of a religion of our own making. We, we leave the grace of Christ behind. We come up with a pathway of works, performance-oriented kind of a, an approach to God. And he, said, he, he says, you're foolish if you do this. You started this by the Spirit. You started this by the, by the grace of Jesus. In the Scripture, we see that Jesus is the author, the beginner. He's the perfecter. He's the finisher of our faith. And he's also the sustainer of our faith. So the work is entirely God's work within us. Paul's saying, how is it that you start by grace and then you leave it behind to come up with a pathway of your own making? Here's the analogy. A few weeks ago, I, I got back from a trip to India. I had this incredible opportunity to go to India and be a part of, of uh, a conference that our partners in India were hosting and got a chance to interact with and, and speak to about 2,000 um, Indian pastors from all over the nation. And, and it was just an incredible time. But 
I want you to think for a moment, as I head over to India, I, I go down to SeaTac, I get on an airplane, and I am content to let the journey begin off of another power, right? I, I'm content to just buckle my seat and to let the engine rev up and to let the, the momentum of the plane lift off the ground and, 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 and all of that to, to propel me at about 500 plus miles an hour, 35,000 feet. And I'm just, I'm, I'm content to lean back and just to let it happen, to cooperate with the energy that's already moving me forward. But, but imagine if somewhere out past the eastern seaboard, I think to myself, you know what? This journey started so well, and it's going along so swimmingly, I think I can make it the rest of the way on my own strength. And so I just step outside of the airplane, and I flap really, really hard, and I think I'm just going to complete the journey on my own human effort. Now, in this analogy, what happens to idiot Mike? <laughs> right? Now, you might argue, oh, well, you would go forward a little bit just because of the momentum of the plane. I mean, you would, you know, be carried forward, you know, quite some ways. And yeah, maybe for a while, but, but the rest of the way, straight down, right? And that's true with your own human effort. You might be able to, to go forward just a little bit on your own strength just because of that sort of residual momentum of the Holy Spirit working in your life. But, but if you're trying to do it on your own strength, if, if you're trying to muster this stuff up just out of your own power, you're going to fall just like the dummy in that analogy. So I, I want you to just to kind of see it's, it's a ridiculous kind of a concept. And Paul's trying to draw out the ridiculousness of it. Jesus is the one who started this thing. Jesus is the one who has loved you and who has given himself for you, provided this umbrella of grace for you, invited you into a relationship with him that starts now and lasts for eternity. It's all the work of Jesus in your life. So just receive it and cooperate with it. Let the Holy Spirit be your jet fuel, right? Let the grace of God be your airplane. Let the umbrella of grace carry you where God is taking you. Ultimately, it's to be with him forever and ever. So let that happen. Cooperate with his work in your life. Don't leave it behind and think that you can come up with a religious checklist that if you just check enough boxes, you're going to be fine with God. That's a silly, silly analogy. And the last chapter was this big wrestle match with the law. In this chapter, Paul's helping us see that our faith, it's what opens us up to the grace that Jesus has for us, and it's our faith that connects us with God's spirit. So he kind of focuses more on the spirit of God in this chapter. He keeps going. He says, have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law, of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. I'd love to have you just circle the word believe. Because that's really what Paul is kind of hinging everything on. Kind of he is hinging it all on belief. The fill-in is when you believe, you receive God's spirit. When you believe, you receive God's spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is within us. That's why the Holy Spirit is working among us, he says. It's not because of obedience to the law, performance-based at all. It's because of our belief in Christ Jesus. 
And by the way, when I was over in India and I got a chance to interact with these incredible, humble, faithful pastors, what was amazing to me is so many times they had stories of miraculous things happening right in their own context. So many of them had experienced God's work powerfully in their midst. And it made me think, if I, if I gathered 2,000 you know, pastors in America, would they have the same level of miraculous stories as these humble Indian pastors? And, and, and one of the thoughts that I had is, I, I think the reason why it's so clear in the context over there is a couple of things. Number one, there's incredible persecution happening against the church in India. And so because of that, there's a certain posture that, that Jesus' followers take, which is, we need you so desperately, Jesus. The second thing is because there's far less material things to rely upon in India. It's just easier for us to re rely on sort of material uh, things and, and material, you know, blessings, if you will, here. We just kind of get through our days just sort of bumping around in, in, in this material world, and we are material girls, and so. Um, <laughs> but see, in India, that's just not there, and, and, and so there's this, we are desperate for you, Jesus. If, if you don't make a way, then there really is no way. And the third thing, the reason why I, see, I think they see more miracles is because they expect more miracles. And so because there's an expectation that God is at work within us, then they have eyes now that are, are attuned to see the miraculous. And friends, I, I don't want to spend too much time here because I feel like this is a little bit of a dogleg from, from this main central concept of grace. But I do want you to know that as your pastor in ministry for 26 years, that I have been able to, to stand sort of on, on the right next to God's work in the miraculous. And I have seen God move in, in ways that bring healing. I've seen resurrection of marriages. I've, I've seen, uh, you know, provisional miracles. I, just many, you know, many, many over 26 years. <coughs> Excuse me. And, 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 it's, and it could be, you know, massive. Like even this week, I, I heard a story of a, uh, and, and verified that, that a, a guy who had wrestled with an illness, a lifelong illness, that, that God just healed him. Like it just happened and he, he's, he does not have symptoms and he doesn't have evidence of that disease anymore. It's just, it was miraculous. But I would say that there, there are levels, layers of the miraculous. Like for me, a miracle is a young student with learning disabilities and something just clicks and now math is their favorite subject. To me, that's a miracle. Right? There's, there's just layer after layer of miracles. I've talked to, to parents who have lost a loved one, and, and even though God did not answer the miracle of saving their loved one, they, they would attest that they saw God's miraculous hand again and again and again in that journey. And even though it ended in the death of a loved one, they felt absolutely assured that God was with them and walking with them through that experience. And so one of the prayers that I pray, and I would encourage you to pray it too, is God, would you help me have the eyes to see the miracles that you're performing right in front of me all the time? Right? I want to be a part of it. I, I want to see this miraculous hand of, of God working within us. Okay, now again, Paul, for Paul, the big focus is belief. And it's the faith that we have in Jesus that connects us. It connects us to his grace it connects us to his empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It connects us to salvation and redemption, not only of our souls, but the reconciliation of all things. 
And, and the belief for Paul is huge. For him, it's the springboard. We talk about faith is that doorway that we walk through in Jesus. And then Paul continues. He says, in the same way, Abraham believed God. So again, there's that emphasis of belief. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, then, are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. Who are the Gentiles? Remember, they're everybody else who's not Jewish. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. Okay. Now, there's a phrase in there that in your Bibles might be a little different than this translation. It says, uh, God counted Abraham as righteous. That's what we just read. Your translation might say, God credited it to him as righteousness. And it brings up an interesting thing, right? It brings up an interesting thing about what we value. And again, Paul's talking about how we value works, how we value the law. We place a certain value on our own effort. And what the scripture says here is that Abraham, the righteousness he had, he had was not based on his own effort. The righteousness he had was credited to him by God. It was just, it was just given it to, God just said, because you believe, I'm just going to give you this. Right? And that's grace. I, I want you to imagine you, you might do your banking a little bit like I do. I have, um, I have a, a card in my wallet that I use. It's not really a credit card. It's a debit card. It's connected to my bank account. And so when I, when I go and I pay for something at the store, the money just comes right from my bank account and, and makes that payment. And, and so that's how that situation works. I, I want you to imagine that, that you are given a card that's a debit card and there's a little letter that's written from, from the giver of this card to you. And the, the letter indicates that this card is connected to a bank account that will always have $1,000 every day put in. That, that all you... <laughs> praise Jesus, I hear. All right. All, all, all you have to know is that if on Tuesday you spend $100... On Wednesday morning, you will have in your bank account $1,000. If on Wednesday you spend $1,000, on Thursday morning, you will wake up and you will have $1,000. So every day, brand new, limitless, anonymous source will just put $1,000 into your account. Can I get an amen? Does that sound awesome? I want that card, by the way. I don't know if there's a point. I just really want that card. <laughs> now, the point is, the point is this. The, 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 the point is that that's what God does for us with his grace as we believe that he just fills up our account. And he fills it up every single day, right? It's credited to us as righteousness. Not our own self-righteousness. It's credited to us because of the grace of Jesus, because we're under that umbrella, and, and I would say that when we do go back to a works-based framework, which inevitably we do, and we, we all are going to wrestle with this, we'll go back to that works-based framework and we'll work really hard. We'll strive really hard for the Lord. 
Maybe we'll sacrifice. Maybe we'll give. Or maybe it's like a personal discipline. We're just going to lean into really, really hard. And then we come to the Lord and we say, look, here is the currency of my works. Here's the value. Here's, here's what I've brought for you. And he'll look at it. And I don't think he'll say that's of no value. He'll be like, oh, good job, man. That's like a half a penny. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm going to credit your account every single day. And you will have a, a perfect amount every single day. No matter how much you withdraw from it, it will always be credited to you as righteousness. Why? Because of your because of your belief. It's because your belief brings you to a place where you dwell under the shelter of the umbrella of grace. Okay? Here's the fill-in. Grace sets up faith as the new currency. Grace sets up our faith as the new currency, or as the word Paul uses throughout this chapter, belief. It's our belief in Christ. It's our belief in Christ that, that, that allows the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within us. It's a, our belief in Christ that allows the Holy Spirit to work miracles in our midst. It's our belief in Christ that connects us then with this blessing that comes all the way through Abraham, through Jesus to us. Because of our faith, we dwell under the umbrella of grace. Faith is the currency that has value. Works, Paul says, does not have much value. I there's a story that I've told. I actually looked for this bill, and I'm so sorry I couldn't find it. It was a bill from someplace in Africa. It was a million-dollar bill, a banknote, like a, like, a, like a dollar bill, only a million dollars. But because of fierce devaluation and inflation in the nation, that bill that said a million dollars, and it was legal tender there in that country, I, I looked up how much was it worth in the U.S. If, if we were to convert that to U.S. currency, a million dollars in this nation was worth about 21 cents U.S. It just, it just had no value. And I, and I want us to see that that's what Paul is really going after. It's like, look, if you're going to build your life on any kind of a works-based thing, if you're going to build your life on any kind of a law-based thing, if you're going to build your life on any kind of a religious spirit kind of a thing, you're going to find it has very little currency in the kingdom of God. But faith, faith is the new currency. Faith is what the Lord values the most. Okay? And then Paul continues, verse 27, he says, And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. All right, I need a little participation here. By show of hands, how many of you, you love to get beautiful, well-fitting new clothes? How many of you like to put on new clothes? Anybody? Okay, all right, now put your hands down. Next question, very important. How many of you hate shopping? All right, about the same number of hands. All right, now here's the, here's the third question. How many of you love new clothes but hate shopping? Like you're, you're conflicted. That's where I am, right there. Absolutely love putting on something new, something stylish. I cannot stand shopping. Going to the store or shopping online, not for me. I've got a life to live, people. Okay, so 
So, so here's the deal. Because of my, if I had my way, I'd be wearing the same clothes today that I was wearing as like a college senior. And, you know, they'd be falling off my body and I'd be wearing flip-flops, you know, from back in the day and, and it just would be a mess. And so uh, nobody, including the people I work with, will allow that to happen. And so there was a time about a few years ago where I was approached by my team members, and they were, they were gracious and they were humble as they approached it, but they said, we need to help you with your wardrobe. <laughs> and, and I said, praise the Lord. I, I was really happy with that. And so, um, and, and so anyway, there's, there's been a couple of people who are really much more thoughtful and stylish than I am, and they kind of select some clothes. And, and at one point in, in that conversation, um, the, the person who was, you know, more stylistically inclined was kind of asking me, hey, tell me what kind of clothes you want to wear. And it was really hard for me to answer this question be, because I'm like, I, it, it, it's almost like it's just a, a you, you just got to get it. I, I mean, I, here's, here's what I really want. I want you to make me look as absolutely cool as possible without looking like I'm trying to be cool. Is that hard? Yeah. If my 15-year-old son wants to borrow my clothes, you've gone too far. Okay? So just that, that little gray area. And, and, and so here's the thing, though. But they would help me select the clothes, and then I would put them on, and I would look in the mirror, and I'm like, oh, I, I feel new, and I feel styling, and I feel cool. And, you know, it, it's just a different way to feel. And what Paul's saying is, look, when you're baptized and, and your belief is what's driving you and your, your faith is what brings you under this umbrella of grace, it's like you're putting on Jesus. It's like you're wearing Jesus. And let me be honest, Jesus, he's always stylish. Jesus always looks good on you. And people look at you, oh, she's wearing a Jesus. Look, she's, you know, it's beautiful. Look what he's wearing. Oh, my gosh, he's wearing Jesus. Paul's saying this is, this is a gorgeous, gorgeous thing. You put on Jesus. Then, then this last thing, we'll end with this in verse 26. He says, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Please circle the word one. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You're his heirs and God, God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And again, Paul's tying it all back to Abraham, which is interesting because Paul's writing to the Galatians, and he's, he's tying the promise of grace back to Abraham and what God's work was in Abraham. That was 1,500 years before Paul was writing. And now we are 2,000 years after Paul, so we're looking back 2,000 years to Galatians, 1,500 years more, 3,500 years to Abraham, and we're saying, look, this has always been God's heart. God's heart has always been to bless and grace everybody, everywhere. That's what it's all about, okay? And then he says, specifically, there's neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female, right? He's, he's tying all these things together. Now, let me tell you what he's not doing. What Paul is not doing is it, it's not intended to wipe away distinguishing features. It's not intended to, to say <clears throat> we're all same. That's not what he's, that's not what he's doing. 
right? If you're coming back into America and you have to fill out that passport reentry form and it says check a box, male or female, he's not saying just cross it out and write neither because I'm a Christian and we're all one in Christ Jesus. Like that's, that's not Paul's argument here. Okay? That's not what's intended. What is intended is this. He wants to wipe away, you might want to write this down, he wants to wipe away issues that separate. He's, he's eliminating the issues that separate. So antagonism between groups removed in Christ. Hostilities between groups that have been prevalent throughout human history. He says it's removed in Christ. The way one group inherently distrusts the other group, right? right? There's an inherent distrust between Jew and Gentile. Inherent distrust between slave and free. Inherent distrust between male and female. Paul says it's gone in Christ. It's removed Paul does intend to wipe away issues of power or hierarchy. He does intend to level the playing field. Dominance over one group by another group is gone for good. We talked last week about how dominant culture dominates. Paul says this is over in Christ. One group claiming an inside track to God over the other group. It's gone for good. Now, I, I've known of this verse ever since I became a follower of Jesus, and it's, it's always been one of my favorite verses. But it's even more favorite. That, that doesn't make sense. Um, I, I found that Paul actually is writing strategically against an ancient Jewish prayer. And you can find this Jewish prayer if you're interested. It's in a, it's in a book that's been compiled called the Siddur, and it's an ancient Jewish prayer. Let me read it to you. I, I do not pray it. I don't want you to pray it. I'm going to read it to you so you know what Paul is coming directly against. So here's this ancient Jewish prayer that says, Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So you can see the inherent cultural value of this prayer. Gentiles are sinners. They're out. Slaves are sinners. They deserve their domination. Women are sinners. They deserve to be ruled by men. Right? The inherent cultural value of this prayer. Thank you, God, you've not made me like one of those. And Paul says what? He could have listed any pairing. Right? He, he could have listed any kinds of pairing, but he specifically says what? Jew nor Gentile. Slave nor free male nor female, but we are, we're one. We're one in Christ Jesus. I, I, I want to be honest with you. I absolutely believe in equality, but he's actually not talking about equality. He's talking about oneness. Equality is different than oneness. It's a beautiful thing, and I don't think, he's, I don't think he, this is an argument against equality. Absolutely, it's for equality, but it's for more than equality. It's for oneness. And what does that mean? He, he, he's, he's not saying same. He, he, he's saying you're one. That, that past and future are now intermingled. That your pain becomes my pain, and my pain becomes your pain. 
your victory becomes my victory. My victory becomes your victory. That as I watch you progress in your faith and your relationship with the Lord Jesus, I celebrate that as I hope that you would celebrate my journey as I continue to, to become closer and, and more and more in love with Jesus. And, and there's this oneness, and it's a, it's a beautiful and a mysterious thing, almost like in other places where he talks about the beauty of the unity of marriage that we are one and that past and futures are now intermingled and that there's this incredible honoring and there's this incredible sense of togetherness, right? And that's why we talk about unity, not uniformity. We talk about harmony, but not sameness. We talk about togetherness, but not identicalness, right? Because we're one in Christ Jesus. And that's the last fill-in. The last fill-in is that grace binds us together with Christ. Grace binds us together with Christ. And I want to tell you that it's impossible to be unified. It's impossible to be in harmony. It's impossible to be one on our own strength. So how is this possible? It's possible as we dwell under the shelter of the umbrella of grace that Jesus Christ has provided for us. Hallelujah. Amen. So friends, I'd love to have you bow your heads and close your eyes, and why don't we just ask the Lord to continue to let us walk together in unity under this umbrella. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you. And we just once again recognize that it is not by any merit it's not by any achievement on our own. It's not by any striving of our own. But Lord Jesus, it's because of your incredible love. It's because of your incredible gift of grace for us that we have hope, that we have life, that we have salvation, that we have purpose, that, that we have one another in togetherness. Jesus, we are so thankful for this. We ask that you would open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes to the incredible value of our brothers and sisters all around us. Open our eyes to the incredible gift of relationship that you are inviting us into with one another. Help us to know what it looks like to strive after unity but not uniformity. That we can celebrate harmony without forcing a sameness between one another. And Lord Jesus, would you just open our eyes to your miraculous hand at work in our own lives and in our own journey, in the lives of our family, but also in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Lord, we want to see your hand moving, and we want to celebrate how powerfully it does move. Jesus, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We praise you for this incredible umbrella of grace. We dwell underneath its shelter, and we receive your rest today. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.